Our first scripture reading is in the Old Testament. It's 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's using that blue Bible. It's page 225. This is Hannah's prayer. You may remember the contest between Hannah and Penina, and Penina taunting Hannah all day long because she didn't seem to be able to have kids, and Hannah was heartbroken, and then God answers her prayer, and she gives birth to Samuel. And so here's her song of worship and praise, and this song of worship and praise echoes or comes out when you get to Mary in Luke chapter 1 in the Magnificat. So many of the themes dovetail together. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like Yahweh, and there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance, let not arrogance come from your mouth. For Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. But those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And now we turn to James, the book of James, chapter 1. It's page 1011 in that blue Bible. So we begin a new series, a new sermon series. We finished Ecclesiastes, and our new series is James. And so it's hand and heart. I mentioned it in the pastoral letter this week. I actually preached on this right at the beginning of COVID. A few of you may remember. And then because of COVID, I did it all by video. And the three of you who actually, you know then you'll get to know what's going on, but all the rest of us get to hear it again. So it was a great series. I thought so. I don't want to just let it go to the mothballs. So this morning, right now, we're just going to read verses 1 through 8, but I'm going to work all the way through verse 15. I implore you to keep your Bibles open. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wa- a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what I've read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 2 and also from James is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God, who cannot be tempted by evil and tempts no one, and who gives wisdom generously and without reproach to those who ask in faith. 
lead us through this short letter and aid us that even when we meet various trials, we may count it all joy. For Christ's sake, amen. You may be seated. And so the sermon notes are there on the back of the worship guide. Lots of space to write notes with the three points. And there's a fill in the blank there and some questions at the end. In the 18th century, Hannah More became, came to be acquainted with John Newton and William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, C-L-A-P-H-A-M-S-E-C-T, the Clapham sect. It was a Bible of gospel-centered Christians who worked in slavery. It's one thing that they're known for. One of the other accomplishments that Hannah More is known for are her writings. And back on the credenza, there in the foyer, I gave you one of her poems. I think it's a very significant poem. It's titled, Dan and Jane. And in this poem, Hannah Moore is tackling the book of James. And so, the last few lines of that poem really get it. If faith produce no works, I see that faith is not a living tree. Thus faith and works together grow. No separate life they e'er can know. Their soul and body Hand and heart, what God hath joined, let no man part. It's a great statement there at the end of her poem. And so I give that poem to you and hope that you'll have a chance to read it. But that's where we got the title for the series, Hand and Heart, from Hannah Moore. Now my friends, James, the book of James has taken some heavy blows throughout the century. Heavy hitters like Martin Luther have said very, very mean things about this letter such as the one time when he called it the epistle of straw. Now that was on his bad day. Somewhere later on his good days, he actually took it all back and said it was a great letter. But nobody remembers anything else he says about James. They only remember the epistle of straw. So that's a heavy hit. But also it is often gets pulled out of its canonical, biblical, gospel context and it's made often into a divisive, and destructive battering ram intended to smash people into one peculiar form of submission or another, such as when I was a Church of Christ preacher, we did it all the time, I did it all the time, and other various additional traditions. But James, which is probably the very first letter of the New Testament that's actually been written, is a good document, it's a good letter. And though James seems to only mention Jesus twice, chapter 1, 1 and chapter 2, 1, yet he refers to our Lord in very subtle ways throughout the whole letter. I'm confident, my dear friends, that when we're done with this series, you will come to see Jesus in this letter from one end to the other and you will rejoice. In fact, I can say with even greater confidence that James is a very gospel-grounded letter. Though most of his emphasis is on how God's grace works out and is meant to work out in our lives, it is a gospel-grounded letter. And I'm confident I will be able to show that to you. And so as we start today, we notice that James begins with our attitude, reminds us of our altitude, and encourages us in our beatitude. I worked hard on those three points. Attitude, altitude, beatitude. There they are. And so... Chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, which we already read, our attitude. Notice that James presents us with either several attitudes here and several approaches or one attitude with multiple facets to it. Whichever way you want to see it, it doesn't matter. 
but it's an attitude that we should have as we face trials and troubles. These attitudes are important for our faith to gain muscle and maturity. And it starts out right there in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, joy. Now notice what James is not saying. Be happy when it all goes sour. He didn't say that. He's not saying the other side. Oh, God wants me to be happy so nothing should ever go sour. Right? Those are two extremes and he doesn't say either one of those things. It's more about having a joyful attitude as you go through it. The trial, the tribulation. As you go through it. Because first off you know that it is not punishment. God is not punishing you. Secondly, it is not meaningless. You can count it all joy because the trial, it, is full of purpose. Notice how verse 3 begins. For, that's a purpose statement. For, when your faith is being tried, it produces steadfastness. Oh, there's a place, there's a reason for this trial. It's going somewhere. Yes, and so you can count it joy. My friends, our vision, excuse me, like a good optometrist, James is already tweaking our prescription. You know, when you go to the optometrist, you know how invasive they are. They're just so noisy, nosy, you know. They get into your eyeballs and they look back in there. Oh, your nerve endings, my nerve endings, oh, that's embarrassing. But your nerve endings look really, really good. These cones look great. And, oh, let's put you in this machine and poke air into your eyes. So, oh, this will hurt just a little bit. It'll hurt you more than me, right? Right? <laughs> Right? So they get in there, and then you get to the magic moment. Do you remember this moment when they put that contraption on your face? Now tell me which is clearer, number one, or click number two. Right? Why is the optometrist doing that? Because he's trying to clear up your vision, your prescription. James is doing exactly that. Because our vision is prone to see every event. Through the fractured or clouded lenses. Those of you who had cataract surgeries will appreciate that last one. Clouded lenses of either decadent ease or dour defeat. We are prone automatically to fall into seeing everything under either one of those two misperceptions. Decadent ease. Well, I should always have a good and happy and pain-free life. And so this happens. This must not be good. This must be evil because I'm supposed to have a happy life. Decadent ease. Dour defeat. I'm going through this. God must hate me. Dour defeat. We're prone to look at everything through those two lenses. And so James is stepping in as a good optometrist and is tweaking our perspective. Kind of all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then verse 3, 4. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here we're to have a fresh outlook. Notice right up front, faith can be tested. Faith is tested. Faith is often tested. Now, I'm saying that because there are some people I've run across over the years who think that faith is never tested, that faith is always strong and a trial shows a lack of faith. Hogwash and poppycock, says Mike Fulmer. Faith is and often is and can be tested. James even says it. Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
the tested genuineness, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. My friends, the trials and troubles are not some kind of divinely demeaning evidence that your faith is only a B-grade faith. Rather, the trials and the troubles are actually about adding muscle and maturity to your faith, whatever stage you are in. The trials and troubles are about adding muscle and maturity to your faith at whatever stage you are in. And so what James is after here is for us to have a fresh outlook that says my faith needs to muscle up and mature with patient endurance and steadfastness. Don't answer. Anybody here need more patience? I'm 61. I got less than I had when I was 31. I'm just telling you. Who needs more patient endurance? Who needs steadfastness, right? That's where you start. Here's the fresh outlook. My faith needs to muscle up and mature with patient endurance and steadfastness. That's why my faith is being tried. It's kind of like just two weeks ago, you know that we went to Virginia to go see our daughter and our grandkids, right? And if you don't know this about Virginia compared to Oklahoma, okay, Oklahoma geographically is like this, flat. If it was an EKG, it would be dead. (laughs) Virginia is like this. Hills everywhere. Can I get an amen, Ben? Ben? Yes, yes, amen. I got an amen. It's just hills everywhere. You're either going up or down. You're not going straight. You're going up or down. So my oldest grandson wants to try out for cross country in high school. He says, Papa, I know you run. Would you go run with me? Oh, yeah, I'd be glad to. But I knew. It's going to hurt. Because it's four miles of hills, ow, right? So we ran and we ran. I knew that I was going to be straining. My knees hurt, my calves hurt. Everything hurt all the time, (laughs) all the time. It was, we'll run up the hills for miles and back down, all that stuff. But I knew there was a payoff or there's an end result. I knew that when I got back to flat earth Oklahoma, I was going to knock out my running time. Now, this may not sound very impressive to you, but at 61, this is awesome. At four miles, my four-mile run, I have knocked off 15 seconds per mile in that four miles. Now, that's a lot for me, right? But that all came from running those hills. You get it? Does that make sense? Does that illustration help? That's the idea. My my faith needs to muscle up and mature with patient endurance and steadfastness. That's why my faith is being tried, that fresh outlook. And so then, verse 4, let's do this. He goes on to say, let, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The let's do this attitude is not let's make our own way. That's what got us into the trouble probably more often than not. It's not let's make, it, make our own way. Instead, the let's do it is this in verse 4. I'm going to let steadfastness have its way with me. I'm going to let steadfastness have its way with me. By the way, I find it very interesting how often steadfastness crops up in the New Testament as a Christian virtue, that we're a quality that we're supposed to be growing in. We heard it when we were going through 2 Peter recently. You're to supplement your faith, make every effort to supplement your faith with what? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, etc. 
Paul tells young Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says, Timothy, flee the love of money, but keep pursuing peace and righteousness and godliness and so forth and steadfastness. Steadfastness is what we're to be growing in and let it grow in us. It's all over scripture and an aspect of steadfastness is stability. You'll notice when we get to verse 8, that faithlessness is unstable. So the opposite is wanted. We want to be stable. That comes up all over Peter's, first and second Peter, I showed you. So let me just say this. What does God want his people to be? He wants us at least to be steadfast and stable. Let me go further. He wants us to be the most steadfast and most stable people in our society. He wants us to be the most steadfast and stable people in our society. So let steadfastness have its way with you. And so what's the purpose and the plan of steadfastness? It's that I will grow up and grow more solid, stable, and settled. That's really the main intent behind the word translated here. Follow along with me in verse 4, okay? This is how it is in the Greek. You know, the New Testament was written in Greek. Everybody remember that? Okay, so here's how it is in the Greek. And let steadfastness have its perfect, teleos, perfect effect that you may be perfect, teleos, and complete. Now I want you to notice the way that's laid out there. The idea of perfection in Scripture is never, ever, ever about sinless perfection. You can tell when you read verse 4 that perfection is about muscling up with maturity. So let me say it. Let me get down here with you. Perfection in Scripture is not about sinless perfection. Okay, everybody say it with me. Ready? Perfection in Scripture is not about sinless perfection. Perfection in Scripture is about muscling up maturing faith. Perfection in Scripture is about muscling up maturing faith. Thank you. You get an A. That's what he's driving at here. That, it would, it, that steadfastness would mature us and grow us. So that we're not really lacking anything. But if we are lacking, he goes on to tell us what happens. And it's this. What God will do. Verses 5 through 8. What God will do. And what will God do? Well, if you find you're lacking, ask him. And notice God's character is brought out here. Who will give you generously without reproach. That's pretty cool. Ask. Right? But here's where I think we begin to realize what James is up to in these first 15 verses. When you come to verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. Notice the problem is impugning God's character. Let no one doubt. Let no one doubt. Doubt what? That God is generous and gives lavishly without reproach. Let no one doubt because then he's like his society. A storm-tossed ship on on the sea during a raging storm. My friends, impugning God's character is hinted at here... ...and it will be brought out when we get down to verse 13 in a minute... ...but impugning, maligning God's character... ...is probably the very first place we become tempted... ...and it is is only the path of immaturity and instability. That's where he ends up. Look at verse 8. He's a double-minded man, unstable 
in all his ways. Maligning God's character, impugning God's character. Well, I think he's generous, but I really don't believe that because, you know, then I'm going through this trial or whatever. Soon as we begin to malign and, and, and impugn God's character, it is the path of immaturity and instability. Confidence. Confidence in God. Confidence in his just and gracious and generous and merciful character then is exactly what leads to greater maturity. And so I want to give you an exercise. If you read my letter this week, you've already been made privy to this. But here's the exercise I want to give you. I'll bring it up again at the end of the sermon. It's actually one of the questions down at the bottom of the sermon notes. I challenge you or encourage you or ask you to take the time to actually read through James and look for every time God's character is brought up in James. Whether it's specifically stated or implied. And you'll be surprised. You'll be encouraged. Just in chapter 1 alone, verses 5 through 8, verse 13, verses 17 through 18, verses 26 through 27, is talking about God's character. That's just chapter 1. Read James looking for the character of God and how it is brought out, and it will be encouraging to you. Lastly, as we think about attitude, notice that we are in this together. I think we just need to always remember that. We're in this together. Every you in James is second person plural, all y'all, right? You. But notice how it begins. James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. All y'all. Together, by grace alone, together by the gracious adoption of God alone, together by the gracious engrafting by God into the seed of Abraham. We are the dispersion. We are the 12 tribes of God's people. We are, as, Jay, as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, we are God's minority people, the dispersion, and we are in this together. So it's not simply going to be about my faith. It's going to be about our joint faith as God's people. And so this shifting of attitude now gives us some altitude. Altitude. So we're going to pick up at verse 9 through 11. So read along with me. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass... And its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Sounds so much like our series we just got finished with in Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Yes? Isn't that interesting? Notice, my friends, that whether you and I are high-flying or we're just skimming the treetops, we always have altitude. We always have altitude. But it's getting our altimeter... I'm not a pilot, so I'm working at this, okay? Maybe Dave can help me out with this, right? It's, It's getting our altimeter readings of our altitude correct that's vital. And that's what James is doing here. Notice what he says, verse 9. Those who are lowly are actually the high flyers, verse 10 and 11. Those who are the high flyers are actually just skimming the treetops. There, I just did it. I just said it. I think that's a good way to put it. The directives in verses 9 through 11 are for us to get our perceptions corrected, our altimeter reading recalibrated. And when we do, then it is counterintuitive and it is countercultural. 
You see, society scorns the lowly while it is wowed by the wealthy. And I could say that whether I was in Nigeria, Kenya, the United Kingdom, or United States of America. It's a human thing. Society scorns the lowly but is wowed by the wealthy. But notice that the God who shows no partiality... Remember we read that in the reading before our confession of sin. God shows no partiality. And so you look at verses 9 to 11 and you realize... That God doesn't give preference to the poor. Sorry, Pope Francis, Your Excellence, I think you're wrong. He does not give preference to the poor because he's poor. And he doesn't give any preference to the prosperous because he's prosperous. Sorry, Ken Hagen and Ken Copeland, I know you're wrong. He doesn't give preference to the poor or the prosperous because they're poor or prosperous. He sees humankind differently than we do. And he beckons us in verses 9 through 11. He beckons us to come and stand alongside him and to see one another with him. And you hear that when we were listening to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. Oh, that's where that came from. The Lord brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make him sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. God beckons us to come and stand with him and see one another as he sees us. That's why Jesus our Lord said in the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the divine recalibration that our of our altitude bearings. God is coming in here in verses 9 through 11 and he is recalibrating our altimeter readings of success, our altimeter readings of value, our altimeter readings of worthiness. No, no, everything you think of as, as, as successful and valuable and worthy, you think those people are? Let me show you who I actually think it is, God says. doesn't matter if they're lowly or wealthy. It doesn't matter. They're in my image. And that's how we should see them. It's a great statement there. And so having, our, the, having the proper altimeter readings is also part and parcel of our faith. Gaining muscle and maturity. And so from our shifted attitude that gives us a recalibrated altitude bearings... We can now gain some beatitude, verses nine through, I mean, verses uh, twelve through fifteen. Blessed. There's where I got the word beatitude from. In Matthew chapter five, you have the beatitudes, and every one of them begins with what word? Blessed. Right here it is. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God himself cannot be tempted with evil. He does not tempt anyone to evil. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here's our beatitude. It begins there in verse, verse 12. Blessed. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Notice we're right back to steadfastness and trial. It's the main theme of verses 1 through 15. 
Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. Now we have to stop here a moment. We come to the word trial again. And then you notice when you get down to the next few verses, verse 13, 14, and 15, you notice the word tempted is used. It's like six times, one, two, three, four, five, six, six times. And then you'll notice back up in chapter, verse 2, trial is used there. And here's why I bring it up, because it's the exact same Greek word, pyresmos. Pyresmos. Trial, temptation, aren't those two different things? But yet it's the same word. Well, it just shows you that the Greek is fairly fluid, more fluid than maybe English usually is. But I think it's significant. So every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, this, this hit me one day, this was years ago. I was praying, working through the Lord's Prayer. And what do we ask the Lord not to lead us into? Pyresmos. And it hit me. Wait a minute. Is Jesus disagreeing with James? Because James says God cannot tempt us and bring us into temptation. What? And then I started looking at the Greek. It's the same Greek word as used here, tempted and trial. I'm going, wait, what's up with that? I think I finally got it. It's a perfect Greek word. Here's why. All temptations are trials. But not all trials are temptations. There's the first thing you need to know. All temptations are trials. But not all trials are temptations. And yet, my dear friends, it's when we are going through the trials that we are often tempted to sin, verses 14 through 15. It's when we're going through the trials we are often tempted to sin. And what is the very first aspect of that temptation? Think of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. Where does the evil one go with the temptation? Where does he begin? Has God really said? Now, don't you know that God's jealous of you because if you eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be just like him and he can't. Oh, no, he doesn't want any competition, right? Goes immediately to the character of God. The very first place we get tempted in our trials more often than not is with impugning the character of God. That's why James says, then says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. The first place we get hit with temptation in a trial is impugn God's character. And you know it. There's at least three of you here that know it besides me. You've done it. You know what I'm talking about. You were in that trial. It was hot. You thought it was over. You thought life was coming to an end. You thought you were up to your eyeballs and darkness all around you. And where did you go? I guess God doesn't care about justice. I guess God doesn't care about me. I guess God doesn't care about that, 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 or that. Because I'm going through it. Now maybe none of you did that. But I've done that. This is one of the first places we are tempted in a trial. Is to impugn God's character. That's why James keeps coming back at it here in these first few verses and why he just lays it out for us in verses 12 through 15. So the whole point of this paragraph really is flowing out of verse 12 and it's flowing back to verse 12. Blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. Blesses the man who understands that in the trial he often gets tempted to impugn God's character and so instead of blaming God for his problems... 
blaming God for, for whatever, which is easy to do. Blame shifting is what we always do as humans. I don't know what it is about us. We just shift the blame to everybody else but us. Instead of shifting the blame, stop and go, where did this temptation come from? James tells you. When your desire is luring and enticing you, any of you bass fishermen? No? Fly fishermen? Ah, there we go. I see a hand. I see a hand. When Bob's out fly fishing, he takes that fly rod. Whoosh, come on, come on, trout, come on. He's luring that trout, and that trout's going, mm, that thing looks yummy. And when Bob does it right, he's got him enticed, and that trout grabs it, boom, and he's got himself a running fish, and he lets him go and brings him in and all that, right? That's what our desire does. Our desire lures and entices us and hooks us in and then drags us along, James goes on to say. And so we can remain steadfast. Blessed is the one who is steadfast when he meets trials. We can remain steadfast in the trial because of the truthfulness and the relevance of verse 13. God is not tempted by evil. And so verses 14 through 15 encourages us to remain steadfast. Because all that talk that's there in verses 14 and 15, that downward deadly descent, notice how he diagnoses or he teases it out and lays it out. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. Then sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. That process that he lays out there reminds us that at any moment, it can be broken into. I want you to listen to me a minute. At any moment, it can be broken into. You find yourself being lured and enticed by desire, you can stop right there and say, you know what? I will not impugn the character of God. I will not go compromise just to get out from this heat. And desire dies. Well, it doesn't die, but it no longer is luring and enticing you. It's done. You broke into it. But maybe desire lures and entices you and it puts its hooks in you and it begins to conceive. It conceives sin in you and you go, and then all of a sudden one day you go, I'm not going there. Or the next moment you go, I'm not going there. It can be broken into. Now it's going to be harder because now you've got a conception. You hear what's going on here, the picture? Now you have a conception. It's going to be harder, but it can be done. And then maybe... Maybe it happens that you go with it further and further and further until sin is actually given birth to and it's growing and it's starting to consume your life. It can still be broken into. It's going to be harder to get out of it, but it can still be broken into. How do I know that? Because back up in verse 5 and 6, God who is generous and gives to us generously without reproach, He himself is not tempted by evil and doesn't tempt us to do evil. He is the God for you. He is the God on your behalf. Or to go back to our series in 2 Peter. God has given us, granted to us, all things that pertain to life and godliness. By the grace of God, it can be broken into. There's actually meant to be an encouragement by the way that James stretches out that whole process from desire luring and enticing us to death to let us know there is life all in here and you can break free of that. I find it significant that James uses the same categories that the writer of Psalms, Psalm 7, used. If you heard Scott in our call to worship, he's 
read this, this verse, verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. The difference is that the wicked man loves it, right? The man being spoken to, the woman being spoken to in James chapter 1 doesn't necessarily love it. And so it can be broken into. And so verses 12 through 13 here encourage us to see that it would be much better for us to not even go down two steps down that deadly descent. Blessed is a man who is steadfast under trials for then when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, etc. And so it's This beatitude encourages steadfastness that adds muscle and maturity to our faith. And so as I end, two things very quickly. James recognizes that most of our troubles as Christians, whether it's the trouble of sin or whether it's the trouble of double-mindedness, or as he will bring up at the end of this chapter, whether it's the trouble of phony religiosity, whatever the trouble is, it's usually because we are impugning the character of God. That we have harmful notions of God. And so much of the letter of James is actually meant to correct this and remind us of the gracious and holy character of God. The grace of God and the mercy of God. And so I encourage you, as I did earlier and as I put in my letter, I encourage you to read James looking for everything it says about God's character. And you will be surprised and you will be corrected and you will be encouraged. Lastly, my friends, God is beckoning us here in these first 15 verses to reject our society's stinking thinking. (laughs) That's a phrase from Zig Ziglar, stinking thinking, right? So our society's stinking thinking, to to reject our society's stinking thinking, to adjust our attitude, to recognize and recalibrate our altitude, and to be, be encouraged in our beatitude. Let's pray. The Lord God, who cannot be tempted by sin, to be tempted with evil, and does not tempt us to do that which is evil. But instead, you give lavishly to those who come to you. You give without reproach. I pray, Lord, that you you would draw us close to you. There's someone here, I'm sure, is struggling right this minute, dealing with a temptation that's come up in a trial. And I pray that you would show them how to be free of that. I pray, Lord, you would forgive us for the times that we have demeaned one another's faith, someone's faith. Why, if you just believed enough, you wouldn't have those problems. Shame on us. Lord, I pray that we would see how with our trials often come temptations, and temptations are almost always trials. And that we would rally around one another in the midst of trials and temptations and support one another. And that we would rally around one another at your feet because you are good. And you love your people. So Lord, hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.